Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. church family. You never know in a service what's going to kind of prick your heart or stick with you, encourage you or whatever, but when uh, Matt was given the announcements and he prayed about the Holy Spirit interrogating us, I was like, oh, okay, now we're ready. So I'm just going to re-pray that prayer because I want that to happen to me even while I'm preaching to you and for each one of our hearts, for God to really have a a conversation with us uh, as we're looking at his words. Let's pray. Father, not just because I have bright lights on me, uh, but God, I ask that you'd interrogate my soul. And I ask that each one that's sitting here today, you'd interrogate our hearts, that you would uh, probe around and, and, and mess with stuff and move stuff around and maybe make us uncomfortable or, or change things or tweak things or encourage hearts and souls. And, and God, will you do what you do? And as I speak, even if it's not words that I'm saying, will you have a conversation with each one of our hearts this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We've been doing this series called Be the Church. And through this series, we've talked about several different things, and today's the last week in the series, and so we're going to wrap it up. But when we started, do you remember, we started off in Acts chapter 2, and Acts chapter 2 is really where the church started, and we were talking about God's vision for the church. And we said that God's vision for the church is that we'd be a group of not just sinners, but repenting sinners, sinners that turn. We, we have a change of mind, a change of heart, we're going our own way, and we turn to God. We turn from our sin to Him. And so the church is made up of repenting sinners who are devoted to God and to one another. It's a group of people that are disciples that make other disciples. And so we talked about God's vision for that. And then we went into the next week and talked about being invested in the church. And by being invested in the church, we didn't just mean write a check to the church. We, talk, we were talking about pouring our lives out in the church. And we asked the question, why would we do that? And the answer is really simple. It's the biggest investment you can possibly make. You see in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, it's the only organization that says it's not just about what happens here on this earth, but it's, it's, a glo- it's not just global, it's universal. It's not just that, it's cosmic. It goes beyond Anything that we see, the angels are actually looking into what happens in the church because they long to understand the life change that we experience, redemption, the things that happen in the church, how people that are so different and diverse can be together and unified, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism. And then last week we talked about being involved. And being involved, we didn't just mean finding a place to serve in the church, although that's a part of it. And we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We talked about our spiritual gifts. And I know some people, I talked to one lady this week, She's like, I found my sweet spot. Like she was pumped about her, her area of service. We were talking about even more than just finding a spot where you can serve, about being so involved with one another's lives that the world would take a look of that. They'd take notice of that and see how we love each other and realize that we're his disciples. And today what we're going to talk about is what it means to be on mission as a church. We all live our lives on some kind of mission. Some of us are on our own little mini missions. Some of us' as missions have been assigned to us by other people. But what does it mean to be on mission for God? And so just thinking about mission this week, I went to dictionary.com, not a biblical resource, by the way, uh, but found the definition of mission so that we all are kind of on the same page of what we're even talking about. Dictionary.com just says this, any important task or duty that is assigned, allotted, or even self-imposed. And so the question we ask today is, what is God's mission for us? How do we live on that mission? When I think about missions, I think about, and some of you know that I love action movies, and you think about the different action movies that are out there, probably the classic examples, Tom Cruise with Mission Impossible. They always say the line, your mission, if you choose to accept it. We all know he's going to accept it. We all know it's not actually impossible, too. It might be highly improbable, but you know it's going to happen when you watch the movie, right? 
And, and we know that with every one of those types of movies. You can watch an, a military movie. You, you can know how it's going to end. You still watch the movie. You can watch Will Smith. There'll be like a meteor coming towards the earth. You know that meteor is not going to strike the earth, right? Like we all know that's going to happen. I remember there was a movie that made a lot of people really aware of the issue of human trafficking that came out in 2008 called Taken. Liam Neeson was in it. Liam Neeson's a pretty awesome dude if you've watched him through a bunch of movies, at least in movies he is. And there's a scene in that movie that probably made a lot of people watch it. It's towards the beginning where he finds a cell phone for his daughter. He's the father in this movie, and his daughter's been kidnapped, if you're not aware of the movie. And he finds a cell phone for his daughter underneath this bed. And he picks it up, and he can tell there's someone on the other line, but they're not saying anything. It's the kidnappers. And he says to them, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If it's money, I don't have ransom. And then all of a sudden he starts to draw you in. He says, but what I do have are a special set of skills that I've acquired over a very long career. And now you're like, what are the, what are the skills? <laughs> and he says, it makes me a nightmare for people like you. You give my daughter back, and this is the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. Then he says, but if you don't, I will find you, and I will kill you. And I'm like, now it's on. Now i got to see this movie. Like, what happens? I know how this ends. He finds those. The movie's not going to be like, oh, I, don't know, I just couldn't find them. Like, he, he finds those guys. Spoiler alert. Mission Impossible always accomplishes the mission, just so you know. Superhero movie, the meteor's coming to the earth with, you know, 15 minutes in the movie. Not only do you go, oh, this isn't a 20-minute movie, but you go, no one pays 10 or 12 bucks to watch that meteor hit the earth. The mission gets accomplished. So here's my question for you. Why do we watch? Why do we watch these movies? Some of you are like, I don't. I'm a Christian. What are you doing watching these movies? <laughs> why do the rest of us watch these movies? Here's why. Because we want to see the story. You want to know how it happens. God's got a mission for each one of us. It's worldwide evangelization. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior, then being made into disciples that then can go out and tell every tribe, every tongue, every nation can multiply themselves. It will happen. The how is the question, right? And he tells us in his word, the how is the church. That's God's plan A for reaching the world. There is no plan B. And you know what else? You're the church. You're his plan. So you are the story. And so we've got to ask ourselves the question as a church, how can I make sure I'm on God's mission? And that's what we're going to talk about today in Luke chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 24, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament, the very last chapter, Luke chapter 24. And what's happening here is that Jesus has already died. He's already died on the cross for our sins. He's been buried. Now what we see are some resurrection accounts. We see his resurrection really like a movie. In chapter 24, there are three different scenes of his resurrection. The first scene are where some women go to the tomb, and the tomb is empty. The tomb's empty, so your life doesn't have to be empty. Amen? Amen. Jesus Christ. It's not Easter today, but Jesus is risen. risen. All right, a couple of you have been here on Easter. That's awesome. And that's the first scene. Second scene, there are these two disciples, not well-known disciples. One of them is named Cleopas, and there's another unnamed disciple that are walking on this road. It's called the Emmaus Road. And then Jesus comes to them, but it conceals his identity at first. He starts talking to them. And he's like, what's going on? And they're like, where have you been, man? They're talking to Jesus. There's this guy. He came. They killed him. And then Jesus opens up the scriptures and starts showing them from all the Old Testament how all of the Old Testament actually points to Jesus Christ. And then he reveals himself to them. Their hearts burned within them. They saw the resurrected Christ. Then they come together with the 11 disciples, Peter and John, James, all those guys except for Judas, and some other people that are there with them, and they start giving these reports. And these people, they're troubled, they're doubting, and then Jesus appears in their midst. (laughs) Now, this isn't one of the verses we're going to talk about today, but in verse 41, it says, while they still disbelieved for joy 
So they didn't believe that Jesus had raised from the dead without seeing it themselves. And they start hearing all these people give reports that it happened. And then they see it for themselves and they still disbelieve. Only instead of disbelief because their hearts are troubled, now it's like, this is too good to be true. Have you ever had an experience like that? Like you're overwhelmed with how good something is that happens and you can't even, this can't be reality. That's their state of mind. And then what happens is Jesus gives them some instructions about how to be on mission. Look at it in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are red letters, Jesus speaking. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's all the Old Testament, must, and you might underline that word, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Here what we have in this passage of Scripture, it's Luke's version of the Great Commission. You've been in church before, maybe you've heard of the Great Commission. The most popular version is in Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says the all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And it's based on that authority, he then says, go make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're baptizing at the end of October. If you want to be baptized, mark it on your worship program today. And then teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I'll be with you through this process. Lo, I'm with you always. And we know Matthew's version. But it's so important that it's actually at the end of every gospel account. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20 and verse 21, Jesus says, just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The most succinct, simple version. And how did the Father send Jesus? Well, Luke chapter 19 verse 10 tells us that Jesus was sent on a rescue mission to seek and save that which was lost. Do you know what that is? You and me. We were lost. Dead in our trespasses and sin. Headed in our own direction. Doing our own thing. And then we repent. Stop. Turn. Because it's a work of God that enlightens us to the fact that God didn't just love us so much he died on that cross for our sins. We were his enemies. His wrath was upon us. He was coming against us. But he sent his son as an act of grace, an act of mercy. And so then we turn to what he's done, receive forgiveness, receive that, and we're rescued from our lostness. He came to seek and save that which was lost. That was his mission. Just as the Father sent me on a mission, so I'm sending you on a mission. All the nations. Mark says it like this in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. Some people debate about whether Mark 16, 15 should be in the Bible. If it's not, if it shouldn't be, then in Mark chapter 13 we see it. But Mark chapter 16, verse 15 the, the gospel is going to be preached to all of creation. All, everyone's going to hear the gospel. It's got to go out. That's the mission. And here in Luke, the way that Luke phrases it, he really shows, he gives us enlightenment on how. How does this happen? And the first thing we see is this. And you go back and you see what must happen. That's where the, this point comes from. But it's, it's that you must get on board with what God's already doing. Do you want to be on mission for God? You got to get on board with what God's already doing. Because so many times as Christians, we're trying to figure out, God, do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? And a lot of times Christians will say, you know, what's your plan for my life? What's your will for my life? And, he, and a lot of times we're asking questions about, like, should I live here? Should I marry this person? Should I go to this college? Should I do this job? Should I take this position within this company? Should I have the, these kids? And should, how should I school these kids? Should I get involved with World Relief? Should I get involved with uh, Compassion International? What should I do with all these things? And here's the deal. All those decisions, important decisions to make. You should make financial goals and personal goals and physical goals and family goals and all that kind of stuff. But if you're not living on this mission, you are outside of God's will. You can't be in God's will and live outside of this mission. 
So everything else that happens in your life, all those other decisions, need to fall underneath the big umbrella of God's will. What is God's will? What is it? To make disciples of all nations. So how do all those other pieces fit within that mission? Not wrong to make those other goals. Not saying not, not every, nothing else matters. All the, no, they all matter underneath the big umbrella of how are you making disciples? How are you reaching the nation? How are you reaching your neighbors? How are you, reaching, how are you living a mission for God? So important. It's said all over the scriptures, not just at the end of each gospel, but also through the epistles in the book of Acts. And here we see what happens. Try and imagine the situation that these guys are in. It says here that they doubted because of joy. Most of you here have probably lost somebody before. Parent, grandparent, sibling, child even, spouse. Imagine you lost someone, and then you start hearing these reports that other people are seeing them around town. Imagine you lost a child, and you were so confident they were dead. Your other kids told you they saw that your child die. And then years later, you see your child face to face. This is better than that. That happened in, in the book of Genesis with a guy named Jacob with his son. It was his favorite child, not that you have favorite kids. Imagine how overwhelmed he was. And then here are these folks Jesus was their master, their teacher, their Lord, but he was also their friend. And they watched him die. And they knew he was dead. They saw him flogged. And now they see him alive. And verse 41 says it's, it's too good to be true. They're overwhelmed with this. And then go back to verses 44 and 45, what he says to them. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. You just didn't get it. That everything that's written in the law, everything that's happened to me so far is actually already written in the Bible. Y'all were just missing it. He says, written in Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible. And the prophets, and so you Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, and the Psalms. And by the Psalms, he probably means all the wisdom literature. So Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Psalms. Must, and you might underline that word, must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds. And so imagine that you're a Jewish guy and you, you've spent your whole life studying the Bible and you memorized these songs and you heard these stories when you were a kid. But then all of a sudden, Jesus in the flesh is teaching you the Bible. First of all, that's something. But then you start seeing stuff in these passages of scriptures. You never know. You're like, I know that. I know that story. I didn't know you were in it, Jesus. And as Jesus is showing him, this is about me. And these things were written about me. They must happen. That word must right there. Is, is a Greek word, if you were going to write it in English letters, it's D-E-I, day. It, it, it happens 18 times in the book of Luke. It's divine necessity. This has to happen because it's God's plan. It will happen. What role are you going to play in it is really the question. You see it in another place in Luke chapter 9 and verse 22 when Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen. They don't get it. Peter's just pronounced, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And then, and then Jesus says, this is what must happen. I'm going to be betrayed, handed over to the chief priests, the elders. I'm going to be beaten. I must be murdered. I must die. They're going to kill me. And they don't get it. They're saying this is what has to happen. What are the must that have to happen? You see throughout Scripture, when God says something's going to happen, it happens, right? He tells Adam in the garden, if you eat of the fruit, you're going to die. Why do you think all the genealogies say, and so-and-so beget so-and-so, and they died? And so-and-so beget so-and-so, and they died. God does what he says he's going to do. There's going to be a flood. There's a flood. There's going to be miracles, Moses. There's miracle, Moses. I'm going to release the people after 400 years, which he said back in the book of Genesis. Then you see happen in the book of Exodus. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. He says he's going to send a savior. He does it. And he says it all throughout the Old Testament. Just many people missed it. And so he starts showing them from those scriptures. What is it that says that he shows them? Look at the next part of this passage. 
And he said to them, thus it is written. So this has already been written down. It's not just something that happened. God wasn't calling an audible when they killed Jesus on the cross. That Christ should suffer. That's the first thing that it said it should happen. He should suffer. Those of you who are familiar with what happens with Jesus, he doesn't just die on a cross. You know that there's suffering. And it's bad suffering. You know they mock him. They tear out his beard. They put a thorn crown on his head. They play that game, Blind Man's Bluff. And Isaiah talks about he's going to be beaten beyond recognition of a man. You're not going to recognize him. And so they play Blind Man's Bluff with him. And do you remember that when you're reading through the Gospel accounts of the cross? And the guards stand there. They hit him in the face. They say, prophesy, tell us who hit you. He doesn't answer. They're beating. They're, he's suffering. They flog him. Many people died from floggings. They just did it as like a, a pregame show for Jesus. They beat him. So they flog him. He's, there's, there's a bloody massacre. It's the kind of flogging where there's no limit to the amount of flogging. They probably, Jesus probably passed out from it because the pain was so bad. They had to revive him in the process. And that was just leading up to the cross. And when he died on the cross, he didn't die because of nails in his wrists or his feet. The crucifixion was the worst kind of death you could die. Most people died from dehydration or suffocation. That's suffering. And what Jesus is saying here is that was God's plan for my life. You've got to ask yourself this question. What kind of father plans that for his son? Do you know what the answer is? The kind that loves you. He had to suffer awful because your sin is awful. Most of us don't see that. But you, God loves me. He died for me. That's it's like sentimental and romantic. And we forget how heavy our sin is, that we were against God, that we were his enemies, that his wrath was upon us. And so he has to put his wrath upon his son. And so he suffers. It must happen. Where do we see that? Why don't you read Psalm 22? Crazy psalm. Because it's about crucifixion, and crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. It even talks about them gambling over his clothes. Or read Isaiah 52 and 53. It talks about because of our sins, he was crushed for our iniquities. God's wrath came on him. It wasn't the physical suffering. It was God forsaken him on the cross. Suffering. He has to suffer. And then look what it says next. Verse 46, second part. And on the third day, rise from the dead. So not just resurrection, but a quick resurrection. So his resurrection prophesied probably talking about Psalm 16. For those of you who want to investigate this more, see some of these Old Testament passages that talk about this. Because Peter then later talks about Psalm 16, so we think maybe that's the passage that Jesus was teaching here when he's showing them. But he's showing them from the Old Testament. Look, at all this stuff that's happened, wasn't, it wasn't just that I told you during my earthly ministry. It was written down. It must happen. And so not only did he rise, he was dead long enough to know that he was dead. He's back quick enough, something happened here. And everybody's taking note. But it wasn't just those two things. Look at the next one. There's a third must. Those other two things that happened in the past. Verse 47 is something he wants to happen in the future. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be, future, will happen, be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Past for us, beginning at Jerusalem, but future for them. Luke's the same guy that writes the book of Acts, by the way. We know this is God's plan for the church, the proclamation of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance, that you're going one direction, you stop and you turn. For what? Forgiveness. What happens with forgiveness? You receive Cleansing from your guilt, cleansing from your shame, cleansing from your sin. You're reconciled to the God of the universe. Not a small thing. And that message has to be preached to who? Everybody. And how does it happen? Well, it starts in Jerusalem. What happens in the book of Acts? Have you read Acts? Because Acts is written by the same guy that writes the Gospel of Luke. It's actually like Luke part two. And the beginning part is the life and works of Jesus. And then we get here and it's like, here's the rest of the story. This is what happens after Jesus. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, another version of the Great Commission, by the way, you will be my witnesses. 
And he gives uh, geography for it in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And then he reads through the book of Acts, and it's all about the church. And what happens is that there's a message that gets preached. In Acts chapter 2, the church gets started. Do you know the message? Peter preaches, repent for the forgiveness of sins. Then the church starts, 3,120 people that are devoted to God, devoted to each other, that are making disciples of one another, and God's adding to the number daily. Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 8 are all about the church starting in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 through Acts chapter 12, guess what happens? The church in Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 13, through the end of the book, Acts chapter 28, you see the gospel going beyond Judea and Samaria all the way to Rome. Paul's in Rome. Paul's in trial there. That'd be considered the uttermost parts of the world at that point. But here's the crazy part of the book of Acts. It never ends. If you get to the end of the book of Acts, Paul's on trial in Rome. You don't know what happens with this trial. Here's why. Because the story's still being written. And you're the story. The church is still happening. There's people that still need to hear. And so there's more chapters being written, and your life's part of it. I want to invite a friend of mine up uh, this morning. He's one of our missionaries, Grant Waller. Grant, if you can kind of come up, come up here. There's a microphone in the back of those speakers there. For those of you who don't know Grant, Grant was with us. He hasn't been around here in a little while. He hasn't been here since we've been at the school, but uh, was with us at the very beginning of Southbridge Fellowship, getting started. And God called he and his wife out to, how you doing, brother? <laughs> to Madagascar, Africa. And they've seen God do an amazing work of really just spreading that message. And so a lot of people are like, you're like superhero Christian because you're a missionary. <laughs> so will you tell us, how did God call you and your wife Jody to the mission field in the first place? Yeah, um, our calling was rather unique. Um, way back when, like 20, 25 years ago, even before we knew Madagascar existed, there were people praying um, for Madagascar, specifically for the Mahafali of Madagascar. And um, back in 2004, um, we were looking at um, uh, transitioning from the, the, the Navy um, to being on mission for God in Africa. And the Lord just, you know, brought the Mahafali off the page for us. And um, beginning in 2004, we just knew that we were supposed to go and serve um, the Mahafali of Madagascar. And then you guys, and you know, kind of skipping through some details here, but you got called, ended up going there. Tell us about what God did at the beginning, like yep. kind of walk us through the first few years and then what, what's happening now. Yeah, so 2004 to 2008, uh, went to seminary, got my um, uh, master's in international church planning, which means absolutely nothing um, when you actually get to the mission field because uh, <laughs> you know absolutely nothing um, about the people or anything that they're going through. Um, so back in 2008, we hit the mission field, did language, um, and once we got down to where we were serving, um, we just saw the utter lostness of the people. They were living in darkness, um, worshiping idols, and um, just completely um, separated far from God. Um, so at that time, we started just praying about, you know, what, what's God's will for these people? We saw in the book of Revelation that every tribe, every tongue, every nation would um, come um, to knowledge, and there would be salvation among every tribe. So we just pray that over the people, and we join the prayers that have gone before us, you know, 25, 30 years. We were sent out by you, uh, Southbridge, in 2008 to go to them. You recently sent out Nathan Baker and Tessa Baker um, to go and join us on mission among those people, and uh, God is blessed. That's awesome. Now tell us about when you, like, how long did it take before you really started sharing the gospel with folks, yeah. and then what happened with that? So when we first got there, uh, I was horrible at language. I mean, absolutely awful. And, um, but I knew that was the only way that I was going to share Christ with them. So I studied um, Malagasy and then Mahafali dialect for two years um, and just really learned and focused on learning their culture and just being relational with them. 
um, because they're a very skeptical people and they don't trust um, white people very easily. So I knew that I had to build a relationship with them. And then when you started sharing the gospel, tell me about that. Yeah, um, it actually goes back to the book of Acts. You know, mm-hmm. what Peter shared, he started with what they had previously, their previous understanding um, of the scriptures, which our people had no previous understanding, but he went back to the reference point. So when we started sharing the scripture, we had to start from the very beginning with creation. They, they understand creation, so we went back there. And we walked through 20 stories of the Bible, um, walking from creation to resurrection, and um, we just sat under a tree sharing, you know, for, for a week straight, sharing those 20 stories. And at the end, um, a call to repentance. Tell me about, do you remember the first person or a couple people that came to Christ? Yeah, it was in the uh, uh, village of Besatra. So mm-hmm. we're sitting under the tree. And um, I, I got to that point where, you know, the call to repentance, you, you, you pull the nets. And, um, you know, the, the, the individual people, the, the, the men and women in that village started standing up one by one saying, um, I'm ready to follow Jesus. I'm ready to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing sight. The same thing happened uh, a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later, in the village of Kilimari. And um, one man, Manda, um, he's like B.A. Baracus. I mean, just, you know, <clears throat> totally crazy out there. He, you know, his story was he used to be an animal. Not like an animal, but an animal. Um, think John the Baptist living on locusts and honey. That was his life. Um, murderer, uh, witch doctor, just, you know, totally somebody that, that you would not want to meet in the bush of Madagascar. Um, but God has totally transformed his life, has used him um, to influence thousands of, upon thousands of souls throughout that entire region. Mm-hmm. Now tell me about now what's happening. Uh, just so you guys started, to, how, how many churches did you start right away and then kind of where are we at now? Yeah, so um, it, it's been a long journey. We've been there for nine years. Um, it was a slow roll at first. We started um, with one church and then two and then three and then four and then five. So we've planted five churches. That, so that's all we've done in nine years. Praise the Lord for that. <clears throat> but, so that's, so, but God had other plans for those people. So there's a scripture in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter, two, or chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. And there Paul writes, and he says that um, the word of the Lord has gone forth through the entire region of Macedonia and Achaia. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that there is no need for us to open our mouths. That's what's happened among the Mahafali. So where we went and we started those five churches, those five churches went out and started another 90 churches, and those 90 churches went out and started another 90 churches. So currently there's over 200 churches and Bible studies throughout that entire region where there were previously no churches. Mm-hmm. Amen. Thanks, Lord. It's an amazing testimony to God. Um, and... You as well, because you've been faithful, um, you know, be the church. You have been sending teams our way for the last eight years. Um, Scott came there back in, what, 2010? Somewhere, yeah, right yeah. around the time you were about to start sharing the gospel. Yeah, so mm-hmm. they got there before we actually made that push to start sharing the gospel. Mm-hmm. And you've been partnering with us and co-laboring beside us all those years. Mm-hmm. And th- this is a co-mission together with what God yeah. was already doing. So y'all led handfuls of people to Christ, and now I think you know about how many believers there? Yeah, um, so we, we saw within those five villages probably about um, 300, 400 believers from that direct work. Um, they have taken the gospel out, and now there's about 9,000 believers. Isn't that amazing? And so the gospel is just spreading. It's just That's spreading. what happened. It's not all it's based on like you as the missionary. It's not be, God's just doing a work in people's yeah. hearts, and they're all living on mission. Absolutely. These, these folks. They're, they're, they're making disciples that are making disciples. They're, they're being obedient to the word of the Lord. Mm, that's amazing stuff. 
We don't want to miss that. Let's give the Lord a hand on that. Thanks, the Lord. Thanks, Grant. Thanks so much for coming up here. You got it. You got it. There's about 350,000 people in the uh, Mahafali uh, people group, and about 9,000 of them have come to Christ, which is amazing stuff. And we get pumped about that and praise the Lord for that. Let me tell you about your community. You have over a million lost people in your community. What if God did that here? I mean, there's churches here. Some of them preach the gospel. Some of them don't get that. But what if the believers, like what happened there, it's awesome. I mean, praise the Lord for Grant and Jody going and kind of being the spark that started this fire, but then this fire just keeps spreading. You know why? Because people like the B.A. Baracus guy and a bunch of other guys' names I have a hard time pronouncing, that their lives were changed and then they shared that with other people. And that's, that's what Jesus is telling his disciples here. That's what's supposed to happen. This is the plan. Here's the mission. God did this work. He died on the cross for their sins. He transforms their lives. They get changed because they hear the message of forgiveness and repentance. And they go out and they just start sharing. This is what happened to me. What's Peter doing when he's preaching Acts chapter 2? Here's my story. I repented. I was forgiven. Now, because here's the next point is this. Not just get on board with what God's doing. God's doing a work through the church. That you must be his witness. You must be his witness. Look at verse 48. So verse 47, he says this message has got to be preached. And he looks at these folks that are looking at the resurrected Christ. Think about that. He says in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Now, we don't see the resurrected Christ like the folks in this passage of Scripture did. But we know what Jesus did in our lives. We talk about what we've experienced. You think about what is a witness. I want to point out something to you about this. We don't usually get into a bunch of grammar in a passage. But witness in this passage is a noun. It's not a verb. A lot of times when we go through, you know, if you've been around Christianity, you hear like testify or witness for something or like kind of Christian jargon. It means telling uh, your information, telling your story. As we think, all right, he's going to tell me I need to go out and witness. I need to tell the gospel to these people. I need to evangelize. I need to do door-to-door stuff. What? No, 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 no. Forget all that stuff that you've heard. What is a witness? Witness is somebody who's seen something, heard something, experienced something themselves. And they tell about it. As witness is not something you do. It's who you are. This is an identity statement. You are my witnesses. Now, naturally, out of who we are flows what we do that we would then testify, that we would then share. But you have to be these witnesses. If, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I want you to be a witness. Imagine there's a terrible murder case. You have feelings about it. You've got thoughts about how it should, who's guilty, how it should happen. And they say, we want you to be a witness. But you didn't see it. You can't be a witness. Now, you could go and you could give your opinion on what happened. You could, give your ju- you could preach a sermon on why murder is wrong from a biblical perspective. You could be compassionate to the family who lost someone. It's clear they lost somebody. You, you could memorize a script of what happened if someone else told you what happened. And you know, that's the problem. What some people do with sharing their faith is they're just memorizing a script. The witness tells of what they've experienced. You can't be a witness if you didn't see the murder. If you didn't hear what happened. If you weren't there, there was some, even if it wasn't, you didn't see it directly. If you have no experience of it, you can't be a witness of it. Hear what he's saying. You have to experience. You know what you have to experience? Go back to verse 47, the message Repentance and forgiveness. The problem for many in the church of America is that we've been in the church where church doesn't mean that we're Christians. We haven't experienced the forgiveness that's being talked about in this passage, or for some, let's be candid, you experienced the forgiveness so long ago that it's not that big of a deal anymore to you. So someone, if you, some of you trusted Jesus as your Savior when you're like 7, 10 years old, and you're now like 30 or 40 years old. So something happened 30 years ago, and somebody calls you up about a crime that happened 30 years ago. Like, yeah, I was there. I could, I could talk about that, but it's not the same as if it just happened a couple days ago. But here's the thing about being a Christian. When you repent of your sins, that's the beginning of a life of repentance. 
Repentance at the point of your salvation is the first time you repent. When you turn from your sins, you turn to Jesus Christ, you ask him to be your savior, you believe it was based on his performance on the cross, not your performance in your life. But then it continues to happen as you continue to receive forgiveness. And so why would I want to witness, you know know what, God radically transformed my life when I was 18 years old. I was a punk kid, God grabbed a hold of me, he rescued me, he cleansed me of my shame, cleansed me of my guilt, cleansed me of my sin, brought me into relationship with him. But you know what else? This week, when I screw up, when I break relationships with other humans, I know I can go to my heavenly father and receive forgiveness for what I've done wrong. And I keep receiving forgiveness. What about you? Because the things that we're experiencing, that's the stuff we talk about. If you're, you're into a show right now on Netflix, you guess what? Everything ties back to the show. You're, you're starting a new diet, you, have, you start filtering things through the diet. You met a new girl, just keep thinking, I can, t- I can tie every conversation into the, your new girlfriend. <laughs> we talk about what we're experiencing. Your team won yesterday. There's a hurricane, you're cleaning up your house. Guess what? We talk about those things. We talk about what we love. Do you know what the Bible says? That those who are forgiven much love much. There's a story in Luke chapter 7. You can go see the whole thing yourself. But there's a guy who's religious, and Jesus is trying to point out to him, there's a reason why you don't get who I am. It's because you're so religious and self-righteous, and you don't realize your need for forgiveness. And there's this other woman there, and he looks at her, and he says, this woman's been forgiven much, so she loves much. The reality is we should all be part of the forgiven much. It's not about whether you're a prostitute or you're a murderer. It's about your, you, were, you had God's wrath coming upon you. You were his enemy, and he forgave you. But you have to receive that forgiveness through repentance. That's the message. When you're experiencing the message, you talk about the message. So you go to the Bible and you see how the church started and you see these people and there's a guy who wasn't there, Judas. Do you know what's really interesting about Judas? Judas had pointed people to Jesus before. Jesus sends out the 12. He sends out the 70. Judas probably did miracles in the name of Jesus. Then he uses this guy, Peter, And Acts chapter 2 is the main spokesperson. He he preaches and starts the church to this guy. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? It's not much, just so you know. Peter wasn't more faithful. Peter wasn't better. He wasn't a more righteous person. Do you know what the difference was? Peter knew repentance and forgiveness. Both of them proclaimed. Judas was rehearsing a script, by the way. And Judas was there because what he was getting out of Jesus. And when it wasn't going the way that he wanted, he was out. And then he takes his own life because he doesn't want what Jesus did on the cross to deal with his sin. He's trying to cope with his own sin. But then you got Peter, and you see that Peter has the fruit of repentance. Peter betrayed Jesus too, and he was restored. Both of them denied Jesus. Both of them initially followed Jesus. Both of them did miracles in the name of Jesus. But one guy knew repentance and forgiveness, and one guy didn't. That's the difference. You want to be his witness? You must experience his forgiveness. And then you talk about what you've experienced. And then you invite other people. You invite other people to respond to the message. See, you must be his witness. You must get on board with what he's doing. You must take opportunities to invite others to follow Jesus. Look at the next verse in this passage of scripture. And Luke says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Because a lot of times we talk about this invitation part, and that's the hard part. A lot of Christians, when they talk about their faith, they talk about Jesus-y stuff, or they talk about God kind of stuff, but then you never invite somebody else to respond. The very message of repentance requires a response. If somebody's supposed to stop thinking what you are thinking and turn to God, that requires a response. And so then we can get into the mode of thinking that we have to do like evangelism is like a sales pitch. And so what we think is, and maybe you've even heard training like this before, if so-and-so says this, then you say this, wham, now you got them. 
Here's the deal. You're not trying to win an argument. You're asking the Spirit of God to do something miraculous and take someone who's dead and make them alive, which then requires faith. That's scarier than a sales pitch. Sales pitch, memorizing a script. You can do that. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. Judas could do that. But a witness, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Results are not based on you, not based on your performance. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say to me, I tried to share the gospel with my neighbor. It was a I don't even, they were so confused. I've heard of people coming to Christ through those conversations. Here's a question you need to ask yourself. Was I faithful? Did I follow what the Spirit guided me to do? Do you know how you get the Spirit to guide you? Constantly receiving forgiveness from God so you're right with God, so you're hearing from the Spirit speaking to you. And then he leads you in that process. Do you think that Peter probably had his sermon written out ahead of time for Acts chapter 2? He's probably actually teaching the stuff that Jesus just taught him. When he's talking about the resurrection, he was the son of God, taking their scriptures, the Jewish people, showing them all this stuff was prophesied, you killed your savior, and then they go, what do we do? It's interactive. He says, repent, do what I did, receive what I've done, and that's what you do. You just say, I've been forgiven, share your story. You don't have, to have a script. You don't have to have, some people are afraid to share the gospel because they're thinking somebody's going to ask a question I can't answer. Probably. But God changed your life, right? I once was, but now I am. Who are you? Once was lost, now I'm found. Once was blind, now I see. Once was a liar, now I'm walking in the truth. Whatever your story is, what happened this week? That's your story. And then as a church, what do we do? Well, it says in Ephesians chapter 4 that our job is to equip you to do works of service as a church body. One of the ways that we want to equip you is to give you opportunities to put the gospel on display. And so you get opportunities, like after the service, you heard Grant talking about what's going on there. You want to go to Madagascar and see what's happening there? Go out there to the table, and you can sign up to be interested in future trips that we'll send to Madagascar. You want to be involved with World Relief? There's going to be a table out there. Be involved with World Relief. But what you see is that that's what Jesus did. So he put the gospel on display. He didn't just say it. Think about this passage of Scripture. He appears to these folks. So some of you got your Bibles with you. Go back up to verse 36. They're troubled, they're doubting. He walked with them, he told them all these things were gonna happen. It's all written down in the Bible. They're doubting. What Jesus could have done in that moment when he came back and said, I told you you guys would do this. I knew you'd blow it. You have little faith. He could have shamed them, he could have guilted them. He didn't. Jesus didn't just preach a message of grace. Look at what he does in verse 36. He says, peace to you. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Jesus isn't asking that question because he doesn't know the answer. He's, uh, he's what Matt was praying earlier. He's interrogating their souls. He said, didn't I tell you? Didn't I say all this stuff was going to happen? He's not shaming them. He's not guilting them. He's living out grace to them, not just telling them about it, living it out, which is what we want to do when we talk about being the church. So opportunities. There are more opportunities for you to do this. After the service today, Southbridge Serves, we mentioned that earlier. Let me tell you what some of the opportunities are for Southbridge Serves. Uh, you can get involved with a ministry called Neighbor to Neighbor. Uh, we're going to be going out there and doing some grounds work, just beautification of their, their ministry, but it gives you an opportunity, kind of a first glance of what they're doing. Let me tell you what they are. They're a Christ-centered outreach center here in Southeast Raleigh, or they're in Southeast Raleigh, that offers mentoring to students, jobs for life, student employment, Latino outreach, and enrichment classes. And like I said, we're going to be doing some work there. Pine Hollow Middle School, right here at this school working with some of the folks that are leaders here in the school, and I believe some of the kids from student council here. So right with the folks, you talk about God strategically places where he has us here at this school from 9 to 12 on Saturday, October 14th. We're going to be serving here at this school. You want to do that? Be a part of it. There's another school in our town, Bethesda Elementary School. And we're going to be working there in their library and on their grounds on Saturday, October 14th. Uh, that's gonna, all these things are going to be on that same day. And that school... 
is a rundown school that ranks a four out of ten. So you think about like this school, this new school, everybody's excited about what's happening here, all that kind of stuff. This school, not a new school. Not good. Some of you don't know, our church has a team of people uh, called the outreach team. The outreach team of folks are constantly looking for opportunities for us to demonstrate Christ in our community. One of the members of our outreach team, his name is Todd, Todd Bauman, uh, he went there, he met with the principal, met with some of the teachers, and I'm just going to read to you some of the things he sent me that they, that they said. And they're excited about us coming, doing the work project, but they're more interested in us doing some long-term ministry there. And our hope is that sometimes when these things happen, that that's what happens. We birth into long-term ministry, and they discuss the need for mentors uh, in the school, and that just means going there and having lunch with some of the kids. Uh, they need readers for their kids to come in and read with kids. One teacher said the kids have incredible needs emotionally and socially. You think Jesus could help with that? Maybe he wants to use you. They said they have a pro-dads day where dads come in um, and are present uh, with students that don't have dads that are present in their home. The same with moms. Uh, if you're interested, uh, maybe the workday will be a first opportunity for that. But you've got a bunch of kids there uh, that are not getting some of the opportunities that many of the kids that we know are getting. You want to share the gospel with poor and homeless, you can sign up for Bull City Outreach. That's at the table. Uh, there's other opportunities. Uh, oftentimes you hear about Gateway uh, Ministry or Hope Reigns Ministry. Those are two ministries that are our strategic partner ministries. One helps hurting children. The other one rescues kids uh, in the womb uh, that are going to be murdered. And so you, those are both opportunities you can go and serve at those places as well as others. Here's why. We don't want to just attend church. We want to be the church. We want to just talk about church. We want to be the church. The church is God's plan A for reaching the world. You are the church. God's got a mission for us. How does it happen? He's going to accomplish it with or without you, just so you know. But he invites you in to be part of the story. Acts chapter 28 doesn't end because we're still here. He hasn't come back yet. He's got a mission for us. And he wants to use you. So as your church, we want to give you opportunities if that isn't the right fit, the right place for you, we want you to find a church where you can get excited about that and be involved in those kinds of things. Let's pray.